This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of For Real is sponsored by TBR, tailored book recommendations, which are now available as a gift for Valentine's Day. Is your favorite Valentine a hard-to-shop-for book lover? Give the gift of TBR, Book Riot's subscription service offering tailored book recommendations for readers of all stripes. Choose for plans that allow your loved one to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email as a one-time gift or a year-long subscription, and then sit back while our bibliologists do the rest. When your recipient redeems their gift, they'll complete a profile to tell TBR about their reading preferences and what they're looking for, and they can even connect to their Goodreads account. Then we'll match them up with a bibliologist who will handpick recommendations just for them. Gift start at $16, so there's an option for every budget. Plus, you can schedule the gift to be delivered to your Valentine's inbox on Valentine's Day. No waiting or shipping delays. TBR is produced in partnership with Print, a bookstore in Portland, Maine. So when you treat someone's shelf, you're supporting an indie bookstore too. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow writer Alice Burton. Recording this week's episode on Saturday, January 30th. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Hello, Kim. I think that I've reached the point of quarantine, <laughs> pandemic, this is our lives now, uh, stasis? No, that's not the right word. I don't know. It's I where this is my general state of being. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read an article in the middle, of, like early in January, about how we're all hitting like a pandemic wall at this point because it's been going on for so long that we're kind of all kind of collectively having this experience of being like, boy, I am, I'm done, and I yeah. that it's getting not harder, but just hard in a different way. Exactly. Hard in a different way. People are behaving in very uh, unusual ways, I would say. A lot of my friends have have just been, I don't know, I I think the hitting the wall thing, but then veering off in a variety of directions. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I feel you there. Yeah, I I think... It's right. It's January, and there was this was a long January anyway. And January is always just such a like cold month that it's hard to get outside. I have noticed that it's starting to stay light a little bit later in the evening. So like when I shut my computer off for the end of the workday, like there's still light outside, which feels like a good omen. Uh, that like starting the day in the dark and ending the day in the dark is always really hard for me. So I'm glad for that anyway. Yeah, yeah. The the lighter stuff is great, and I know that you know snow is a uh, um, hot button issue with you, if you will. <laughs> but I was very excited because we got our first winter storm here mm. in Chicago and we got like a, a good amount of snow, especially because I don't have to like travel to work because I work from home for now. Um, mm-hmm. That was a delight because it's something different outside the windows. It's true. I do think like learning to appreciate some differences uh, is is where we're at in pandemic life right now. 
So I don't know if this next thing is a follow-up so much as a, it's a listener uh, listener piece of information. So uh, one of our listeners named Jenny emailed about a book that she thought we would want to put on our radars, uh, given both of our propensities and love for very long book subtitles. So I'm just going to read the whole thing, and it is, it's amazing. I can't believe I didn't know about this book till Jenny emailed about it. So it's called The Mission, or How a Disciple of Carl Sagan, an Ex-Motocross Racer, a Texas Tea Party Congressman, the World's Worst Typewriter Saleswoman, California Mountain People, and an anonymous NASA functionary went to war with Mars, survived an insurgency at Saturn, traded blows with Washington, and stole a ride on an Alabama moon rocket to send a space robot to Jupiter in search of the second Garden of Eden at the bottom of an alien ocean inside of an ice world called Europa. A True Story by David W. (laughs) Brown. (laughs) It takes up the whole front of the book, and I just... I am so delighted by that. I cannot even tell you. I mean, it's truly, um, you know, at the point of, I don't, is it parody or satire? But one of, whichever one of those of of the genre of nonfiction. I think that the part of that that interests me the most is the world's worst typewriter saleswoman. Like, what's her story? I'm curious about California mountain people. I don't know what that, I don't know if that's a band or like actually mountain people living in Cal. Like, I don't, I don't know. And I, that's what I would like to understand more. So anyway, that book came out at the end of January. So uh, if you're curious, I'm curious about it. So I might go find it just to like learn more, but it's called The Mission by David W. Brown. Uh, so thank you for alerting us to that amazing subtitle. My gosh. With that, you know what? Let's just jump into our first sponsor. Yes. It is Book Riot's newsletters. Uh, did you know Book Riot has over 25 newsletters covering Every genre, and I mean every genre, uh, as well as book news and deals. The deals one is great. It comes out every day. It tells you about really good book deals. Sign up for book deals to get notified about the best book sales of the day, handpicked by our editorial staff. So they weed out all the stuff that you're probably not going to be interested in and really highlight the stuff that's like good. There's also Today in Books, our daily newsletter summing up the most interesting headlines from the book world every day. So kind of like our nonfiction in the news segment, but just the entire book world news. Get the Riot Rundown, our roundup of the new content going up on bookriot.com every day, or our new books newsletter that compiles a list of the week's most exciting new releases and comes to you every Tuesday. Uh, We've also got newsletters for horror fans, romance readers, YA lovers, mystery thriller aficionados, of which I am one. Oh, I have to also add True Story, the nonfiction newsletter created by Kim Ugra, hosted currently by me. And more. Uh, go to bookriot.com slash newsletters to sign up for the newsletters that are most interesting to you. That is bookriot.com slash newsletters. Excellent. All right. So for this week's nonfiction in the news, I just have two stories to link to. The first one is just by uh, LitHub, by LitHub staff, and it is the guest editors for the Best American 2021 series. So the Best American series is showcases the best fiction, nonfiction in various different genres and whatnot. And they every year invite guest editors to help compile the volumes. And I always like this because I think it's just interesting to see like who they want to bring in for that. Uh, For the Best American Essays is being guest edited by Catherine Schultz, who is a journalist who won the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for feature writing. So that's kind of exciting. Um, I'm not familiar with her work, but I think that sounds like a great choice. The Best American Food Writing will be guest edited by Gabrielle Hamilton, who is a chef and also wrote the t- a memoir, Blood, Bones, and Butter, which 
I don't remember if I read, but I heard it was really good. Did you read that one, Alice? No, I, I don't cook, so I tend to not gravitate towards food memoirs unless they've got some real catchy grab. Yeah. So Best American Science in Nature Writing is being guest edited by Ed Young, who is uh, wrote the book I Contain Multitudes and also is a staff writer at The Atlantic who has been doing this really incredible series on the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think he's a really interesting and great choice. Um, and then the last one is maybe the most out of the box, and that's for Best American Travel Writing, which is Padma Lakshmi, who uh, co or was the executive producer and host of Top Chef and also the host of the Hulu series Taste the Nation. So I think that might be why she is the travel writing uh, editor this year. But I don't know. I just think that's a really interesting slate of guest editors for that series. So I'm the editions go on sale in October. So we've got quite a while to wait for them. But I always like the Best American series when it comes out. I know that I've mentioned this before, but I feel like I should bring it up again. So my I've never watched Top Chef or Taste the Nation, but my only experience with Padma Lakshmi on TV is when she was a guest star on 30 Rock. And she said that she <laughs> invented the sandwich bag. And it's like my favorite thing. So in short, I approve of her being an editor solely based on that guest appearance. That's very funny. Um, and then the second one we'll link to that I won't talk about for very long uh, is a New York Times profile of Michelle Burford. The headline of the article is just don't call her a ghostwriter, but she that's what she is. She ghostwrites famous women, uh, particularly famous black women like Cicely Tyson, Alicia Keys, and Gabby Douglas to write memoirs. Um, but so the uh, profile talks about kind of what her work as a, a ghostwriter is, why she doesn't like that term. She talks about that term puts her in the shadows and what she really is a collaborator. Um, she's one of the writers where you'll see her name on the front of a celebrity's book in addition to theirs, where a lot of ghostwriters uh, don't do that. So I think it's just a really interesting profile of her talking about the people she's worked with, um, what it, how she doesn't want to be pigeonholed into just writing, helping black women write their work, but also that it helps her the, helps them find their voice. And um, I'm fascinated by that whole ghostwriting thing. And so I thought it was a super interesting profile. So we'll link to that one as well. Oh, speaking of Cicely Tyson and that, yes. memoir, we, sh we should add that. Um, so uh, she recently passed. Yeah. Sad news. But on January 26th, her memoir came out. Um, it's mm -hmm. called Just As I Am. And it hit number one, I think hours after she passed away. And it sold out on Amazon, which I was astonished by. Just because I don't think I remember hearing about a book selling out on Amazon. Yeah, that's true. And so she helped with that one as well. So we'll link to that profile. And uh, that's what we've got for nonfiction in the news this week. So we will shift gears into our first segment, which is new nonfiction. So nonfiction that is out or coming out soon that we are excited to read. And so I'm actually, this week, two of the three that I'm going to talk about are coming out on February 9th, so they won't be out quite yet, but um, they were. I started them, and they were so good that I wanted to talk about them right away. So uh, the first one is Between Two Kingdoms, A Memoir of Life Interrupted by Suleika Juada, which comes out February 9th from Random House. So this is, quote, a searing, deeply moving memoir of illness and recovery that traces one woman's journey from diagnosis to remission and ultimately a road trip of healing and self-discovery. So uh, the book opens uh, right at her college graduation. She is ready to, like, enter the real world. So she uh, finds a job in Paris where she is going to work as a paralegal. She falls in love. Her boyfriend moves over to Paris with her. They have this, like, storybook life, and then she's beginning to kind of look into international journalism and what her 
her next thing will be. Um, but then she starts to get really sick and her illness started in college. She was like itchy all the time. Um, and then she started suffering from like really deep exhaustion and she's uh, anemia. And eventually she is diagnosed with leukemia or bone cancer. Uh, a strain of it that gives her a 35% chance of survival, and she gives this diagnosis when she is 23. So um, she spends the next four years in the hospital going through chemotherapy, a clinical trial, a bone marrow transplant, uh, and eventually comes out at the other side of that being, quote, cured of cancer. Although, like, I think the memo will go on to point on that you can't ever really truly be cured. So then she goes on to write about how, how she, like, lives again after spending most of her 20s with this illness that really most of her family thought was going to be fatal. And so she decides that she's going to head out on a road trip around the country to meet some of the people that she had written to or interacted with during her illness, other people who are facing illnesses like this or just other challenges. And so um, I'm not, I'm in the middle of her cancer journey right now in the book. And it is, um, boy, this is just such a beautifully written book. She is so, there's something about it that just, she has such a clear perspective on her experience and is able to describe it in such very specific detail that it's, you, you're, you sort of know exactly what she's experiencing and you feel like you do a little bit. But they're also like very hard to read, not because they're like graphic, but the descriptions of what her what is happening to her body and what she's thinking about and what she's feeling are just so specific and detailed. And I don't know, something about this one that I haven't been able to put my finger on exactly. Like from the very first page, I was just, I was in for this memoir. Like I sat down to read a bit of it to see how I was going to like it. And I read like 30% of it in one sitting because I just, I just found it so engaging. So I am very interested to pick this one up again and keep going with it. So that is Between Two Kingdoms, A Memoir of Life Interrupted by Suleika Juadu. I love when you just like click with a book like yeah. that. Yeah. Where yeah. just the second, like it's, it, you can tell from the first page, you're like, oh, okay, this is something that like responds to something within me. Like I get mm-hmm. this author's voice. Like, oh gosh, it's so nice. Oh, um, speaking of, uh, I kind of feel that way about my first pick for new releases this week. It is Two Truths and a Lie, A Murder, A Private Investigator, and Her Search for Justice by Ellen McGarrahan. It's out February 2nd from Random House. Gosh, I was okay. So I picked up this one being like, oh, I'll like check it out for new releases and just I, it's going to be fine, whatever. There's so many true crime books. And I just love it. <laughs> I've been telling everyone about it. I don't. Oh, okay. So in 1990, Ellen McGarrahan was a reporter for the Miami Herald. She'd gone to school for journalism. She was like, this is my life. She covered the execution of Jesse Taffaro who was a man who had been convicted of murdering two police officers at a rest stop in Florida. So way, like many years, it basically was a very traumatizing, like the execution didn't go right, meaning like it was not quick. And uh, it was very traumatizing uh, as a thing to witness, I'm sure for a number of reasons, because mm-hmm. oh my gosh. But anyway, so years later, she is like watching 2020 or Dateline or something. And they say, could this man have been innocent? And of course, that's going to throw you for a whole other loop as it did for her. So she basically, at that point, she had become a private investigator. And she decides to get really into the case and try to figure out what actually happened. Because he had been arrested. His 
partner or wife, I don't remember if they were technically married, uh, Sonny had been arrested. And then this other man, Walter, had been in the car but had said, oh, like, Jesse did it. And then a few times he had said, no, I did it. So it was like a very weird, like, uncertain case for which someone was executed. So this story is Ellen McGarrahan following the threads and doing the investigation and uncovering all the stuff that like just hadn't been brought up at trial or uh, wasn't generally known when like because essentially Sunny had been in prison too for this murder and then she was released and she was the subject of the very popular I think Broadway play The Exonerated and like one of the subjects in there which was like all about people who had been wrongfully accused and i I'm about halfway through the book. I believe the point is, uh, I'm not sure that Sonny was wrongfully accused. (laughs) (laughs) So that's this whole other element to it. And stuff keeps like blowing my mind. And like, I don't know. I just love this book. So if you are really into, um, oh, it also gets really into like the, um, let's use the cliche of seedy underbelly of Miami in the 1970s. When um, it wasn't even the Miami Vice, like, slick crime lords. It was just, like, extremely violent and, uh, uh, let's say, upsetting. So, anyway, there's a lot of, of things going on in the book, but it's told really well, and I just think it's it's really well done. So, again, that is Two Truths and a Lie, A Murder, A Private Investigator, and Her Search for Justice by Ellen McGarrahan. Oh, that sounds so good. I love that title, too. Like, it just, it's very, like, what is happening? And, um, yeah, this one was on my list, and I was really interested, so I'm glad that you liked it so much. I'm going to try to get it, because it sounds it sounds so good. Yeah. I think you would love it, because of your journalism background. Yeah, I think that, like, the combination of a journalist and also being a private investigator, like, I think that combination will make a really interesting narrator for this story, too. Um just like bringing those two approaches to investigating this. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, my next pick is also historical true crime. Uh, interesting enough. Uh, it's called The Rope, A True Story of Murder, Heroism, and the Dawn of the NAACP by Alex Tresnowski. And I just have to say, anytime a book has a subtitle, A True Story of Murder, dot, 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 I'm always like, ooh, what is this about? Um, <laughs> it's just... I don't know. This is one of those things. So uh, this one comes out February 9th from 37 Inc. And it is a a historical true crime look at the 1910 murder of 10-year-old Marie Smith and how her death is connected to the birth of modern criminal investigations and the launch of the NAACP, which is a lot of stuff to put together in one book. And I am interested in how it's coming together. So um, Marie Smith was a white resident of Ashbury Park, New Jersey, and in 1910, she disappeared on her walk home from school, and about three days later, she was found murdered in the woods. The police and the sheriff of that area did kind of a cursory investigation and pretty quickly decided that a black repairman named Tom Williams was her killer. And so they arrest him, and he is almost lynched at the jail where they're holding him, and then they sort of realize... I mean, he won't confess. No matter what they do, he sticks to his story. I didn't do this. This I didn't do this. I didn't do this. And so they kind of still think that he did. And so what they decide to do is bring in this young detective from New York to try and help solve the crime. So the detective, his name is Ray Schindler. He got his start as a private investigator investigating insurance claims after the San Francisco earthquake. And then was involved in this big corruption um, investigation in San Francisco after that. 
And so he is brought in. uh, This is his first murder investigation. He's brought in to try and figure out, like, what did they miss? What's going on? Can we actually convict this guy? And then the book is also, or the, the case is also connected to Ida B. Wells, who is a crusading black journalist and activist. And the case is connected particularly to her efforts to stop lynchings of black citizens. And so the book is about bringing kind of these different threads together. There are... So this single crime is connected to issues about religious extremism, about class struggles, about uh, early forensic detection, uh, racial violence in the Jim Crow South after the Civil War and Reconstruction. And so it brings all of these threads together because Tom Williams eventually is defended by lawyers from the NAACP, and it was one of the first cases that they ever took on defending black citizens in the United States. It's super interesting. I'm like 120 pages in, and I... I don't completely see how all of these threads are going to bring themselves together. Like, particularly, I'm not sure how Ida B. Wells is coming into this other true crime story, but I'm really interested to find out. And I like all of the different stories that they're telling. Like, it's one of those books where they each chapter kind of takes a different thread of this story. And sometimes in those, you get to one chapter and you're like, ugh, I don't really care about this part. Like flip through that kind of quick so I can get back to the thread of this that I find interesting. And this one hasn't had that. Like every chapter I'm like, oh, okay, I'm glad to go back to Ida B. Wells for a while. And then I'm glad to go to Ray Schindler for a while. And I'm glad to go back to Ashbury Park for a while. So I like that about it, that it has all these threads. And I think they're going to come together and I'm interested in where all of them are going. So that is The Rope, a true story of murder, heroism, and the dawn of the NAACP by Alex Trisnowski. That sounds really good. It's super interesting. Yeah. Gosh. Okay, so we've got some good January true crime that's coming up. All right, switching topics a little bit is I really like to highlight university press books when I can. They don't get as much press usually, Mm -hmm. and they can be just really good. (laughs) I don't know another way of saying that. There's just, I think that they can fly under the radar, and by um, hopefully, like, lifting those up a bit, people will be interested to, like, check out other offerings. And, like, yeah, university press books can be expensive sometimes, but also I've found that university presses tend to have a lot of sales, like, really Mm. big ones, too. Like, sometimes it's, like, 60% off all our titles. Anyway, that being said, The Black Butterfly, The Harmful Politics of Race and Space in America by Lawrence T. Brown. Now, when I first saw the subtitle, I thought space referred to outer space. That is not true. I had the same thought. Yep. I was like, wow, how are you going (laughs) to... Are you going to talk about that? Mm -hmm. But um, it is in fact referring to space as in uh, on the ground, on the ground space. Okay. So the uh, Black Butterfly, the title, is a reference to the fact that Baltimore's uh, majority Black population, it's Baltimore is about 62% Black, spreads out on both sides of there is a strip of real estate that goes down the center of the city. And then on the both sides of that, of that um, strip of real estate, it is um, majority uh, Black occupied. So it's basically like, here's your hyper segregation right here, where you've got like white people owning, you know, property in this really coveted section, and then like pushing black people out from the center of the city. So his main point, uh, Lawrence T. Brown's, is that ongoing historical trauma caused by a combination of policies, practices, systems, and budgets is at the root of these um, uprisings and crises that we're seeing in hyper hyper segregated cities around the country. Like Chicago, where I believe the term hypersegregation was coined to talk about our north and south sides. 
But um, he wanted to really focus on Baltimore and then kind of use that as a template to look at these other cities around the country. So he looks at the causes of segregation, a lot of which, quick pause, I feel like a lot of the discussions that we're having in our country right now are really talking about how things are not the result of a particular person, they are the result of systems. And Mm -hmm. I am really excited about that conversation because I think it's much more accurate than what we've been saying. Kim, Kim, does that make sense? Like what I'm saying? Yeah, it does, right? Like I think we've historically been like, oh, these things are caused by like this white supremacist person did a bunch of stuff and that's why things are the way they are or these individual people did things. But really it's about a bunch of different systemic issues about redlining and about access to money and about access to inherited capital and all of these other things that come together. And it's more complicated that way, but I think it's more, it feels like there's more to, it gives us actions rather than like blaming a person. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, correspondingly, there's been so much more talk about collective action and Mm -hmm. what it can do as opposed to like, you are the power, you know, Mm -hmm. anyway, not to make a Captain Planet reference, but (laughs) With your powers combined, you are Captain Planet. Okay, so I mean, I really like this because he looks at social science research, policy analysis, archival materials, and talks about the long history of racial segregation's impact on health from uh, toxic pollution to police brutality. Um, He also takes uh, the history of Baltimore and sees how that influenced what cities like St. Louis and Cleveland did um, in terms of their kind of like. racist policies. And throughout, he offers a five-step plan for activists, nonprofits, and public officials to achieve racial equity. So these are solutions to help heal and restore redlined Black neighborhoods, um, including municipal reparations. And he demonstrates that America cannot reflect that Black lives matter until we see how Black neighborhoods matter, which I thought was a a very powerful statement. And uh, one of the main reasons I wanted to highlight this book, because it just, I think it's talking about this topic in a in a kind of a different way through like a different lens uh, that is very interesting. So again, that is The Black Butterfly, The Harmful Politics of Race and Space in America by Lawrence T. Brown. That sounds really fascinating. Yeah. And I think, yeah, your, your focus on like systems and looking at how systems in one city are mimicked or taken or happening simultaneously in other places is probably a good a good primer, even if it is focused like on Baltimore, like there's a lot we can learn about other places too. So excellent pick. That one sounds really good. The last one I want to talk about just briefly is one that we mentioned on our um, anticipated books of 2021. This was one of Alice's picks that I decided to read and really liked a lot. So I wanted to bring it up again real quick. So that is Made in China, A Prisoner and SOS Letter and the Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods by Amelia Pang, uh, which is out February 2nd from Algonquin. Uh, And so this book opens in 2012 when an Oregon woman opens a package of Halloween decorations from Kmart and then finds an SOS note from a Chinese prisoner saying that they're being badly treated and as political prisoners in a factory that they're working in where they're producing these cheap Halloween decorations. So the man who wrote the note is Sun Yi, a Chinese engineer turned political prisoner who is being forced to work at a labor camp alongside criminals, civil rights activists, and others. Um, I think he was there for religious persecution reasons. And so Peng looks at the this particular story, but then other larger stories about other larger stories so we can understand forced labor camps um, and how American consumerism is playing into all of that. 
So the book quote shows us the true cost of America's cheap goods and shares what is ultimately a call to action, urging us to ask more questions and demand more answers from the companies we patronize. Um, And this one is really interesting so far too. Like, you know how most um, nonfiction books start out with an introduction that sort of lays out the full extent of their argument? This one didn't feel like it had that. It sort of drops you right into this woman finding the note, and then it drops you right into Sun Yi and how he ended up where he did. And now it's kind of pulling back to look at forced labor camps in China more generally and how those connect to more legitimate factories and how that is going to then come around back to the United States. So I think it's really well reported. The writing is very accessible, um, and I'm interested to kind of keep going with this one as well. Doesn't she say something, Amelia Pang, doesn't she say something about how Americans have a a very incorrect general idea of what labor camps in China are like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's, I was, I read like the beginning and I remember her mentioning that and I was like, oh gosh, that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. That there are, uh, there's chapters talking about how there are like these prison labor camps that are one thing. And then there are sort of factories of how we typically think about you know, labor overseas, and those are completely different. And often, um, they're like built very close to each other. And so it can kind of look like things are coming from this like more reputable factory, but really, they're coming from these prison camps, and then like getting kind of funneled through and that it's a very complicated and interwoven system, even if, um, you know, a particular factory is not a bad place. It's often very well connected to one that is. And so it's harder to disentangle those things. I think. Gosh. So yeah, that is uh, Made in China, A Prisoner and SOS Letter and the Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods by Amelia Pang, which is very good and recommended. All right. So with that, we will hop to our second sponsor. Uh, this week's episode is also sponsored by Book Riot Insiders, the digital hangout spot for the Book Riot community. So you can enrich your reading life with our Book Riot Insiders perks. We've got three levels to insiders, short story, novel, and epic. So you can try any level for free for two weeks. The highlight uh, is our group read hosted online, available to all Epic members. Each quarter, we'll read a book voted on by subscribers that will fulfill at least one task of the Read Harder Challenge. And then we cap off the read along with a live chat. Insiders also get exclusive access to bookish deals, behind-the-scenes newsletters, exclusive podcasts, and more. So sign up for a free trial at insiders.bookriot.com. So for this week, our themed topic, since it is February, and I do love things that are tied to... uh, months and events is uh, epic love stories. So talking about, in various different ways, big and epic stories of love. So I think we've each kind of approached this in a little bit different way again. So I'm very curious to hear about the books you picked, Alice. Yes. Okay. When I was 13, unsurprisingly, I was very obsessed with love stories. Um, (laughs) It's the appropriate time, although maybe any time is the appropriate time. Anyway, I was also very, very into the 1930s and 40s. And one of the things I got very into were uh, Gracie Allen and George Burns, who were radio and television stars of the, well, okay, so they started out in vaudeville in the 20s and then had a radio show and then had a television show. And then Gracie Allen passed away in the 1960s. So they were pretty much working steadily for about 40 years. Um, But they were also married. And you might, if you're uh, maybe like a millennial, you might have heard of George Burns because he was still around when we were kids, but he was just very old. And the joke was always, wow, that George Burns, he's very old. And he always had a cigar and that was kind of his deal. He was in a movie called God. Well, I don't need to get into all this. Okay. So George Burns and Gracie Allen, 
They met um, working in vaudeville, and they had an act where George Burns tried to be the funny one, and Tracy Allen was supposed to be the straight man, you know, quote unquote. But her lines got more laughs than his (laughs) when she was (laughs) just being the straight man. So he switched it. She created this character who at the time was known as a dizzy dame, which is um, a woman who does not have a lot of common sense. Don't don't think about it too hard. Um, But... (laughs) She uh, she is so funny. And the title, um, Gracie, a love story. So their whole catchphrase was say goodnight, Gracie, which they would say at the end of everything. And popularly, they think that she said goodnight, Gracie, because that was like in keeping with her character. She, in fact, only said goodnight. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, say goodnight, Gracie is definitely uh, probably the biggest thing left over from their, their um, lives uh, in pop culture. This all to say, George Burns wrote this book. He loves Gracie Allen so much and doesn't think he deserves her and respects her talent to such a like a huge degree that it's just I love this book. And the like just the way that he writes about his at that point, I think she had passed away at least decades before, like a few like a couple decades before if not more. And just like, you know, saying, oh, she was so much more talented than I was and like put up with this. She like deigned to marry me. And like, it's just so heartwarming (laughs) and lovely. And then if you listen to any of their radio episodes, which are on YouTube or their TV show, which is also on YouTube, they're just really genuinely funny. And she is so talented again. I can't really overemphasize that. Um, I wish that we talked about her more in the culture still, just because um, she was a, a pretty big part of pop culture in the mid-century, uh, in the 20th century. So anyway, that is Gracie, A Love Story by George Burns. Um, check it out. It's really sweet. That does sound lovely. I love books by men who are like, my wife, partner, sister, whatever, is just like better than me and was so great. Like I just, something about that I just really love. Because it's, it's, it's like a level, given sort of the state of our world and like masculinity and all of that, like it's it's a really vulnerable thing to do. And I, I appreciate that. Great pick. All right. So uh, my first pick is a more contemporary love story, not a famous one. Uh, it's called 100 Names for Love by Diane Ackerman. And this is a memoir. The thing that pers- sets the memoir off is that in 2016, her husband, writer Paul West, suffered a massive stroke that nearly destroyed all of the language processing functions of his brain. And so for a a couple of writers, this particular stroke, which would be devastating for everyone, felt even more devastating for them because it affected so much of how they were able to communicate with each other and the outside world. So uh, the memoir is about the five years after the stroke and how it changed their lives. There's also a lot of research in this book about how the brain works that uh, helps Ackerman try and explain the damage that the stroke caused and how he was able to kind of rebuild his brain and bring back a lot of his language skills as he recovered over that five years. I read this one several years ago. The writing is just beautiful. She very seamlessly blends science into the memoir part of the story, which I really admired. And I really loved uh, particularly how she was able to hone in on the very specific things about their life together and how the stroke affected them and how they got those things back. And she gets at this, like, you know how, like, when you're in a relationship with someone, like, you, the stuff that, see, like, things just become normal, things that are, like, are strange. And so she gets at this, like, common strangeness and how you come up with sort of these, like, ways of being that are only make sense to you. Um, and I love the way that she captured that in this book. 
I also want to call out, she also wrote a natural history book or a science book about love called A Natural History of Love. Uh, I haven't read this one, but it is a book that looks through history, literature, biology, and pop culture in search of the great intangible that is love. So she looks at adultery and why there's a lure to it, the why stuff about aphrodisiacs, uh, about kisses. She looks, uh, she tells lots of different love stories and whatnot. And so um, I think that two of them together actually might make a really interesting pair, although I haven't read the second. So that is A Natural History of Love by Diane Ackerman and 100 Names for Love by Diane Ackerman. All those both sound really good. That was nice. This reminds me, quick side note, my I have a literary journal I got when I was 15, and the front of it I is only um, printed out photos that I like printed in my family printer of people kissing in t- <laughs> TV and movies. Aw, that's nice. It's, yeah, it's, it's cute. Anyway, okay, my next pick is Outlaw Marriages, The Hidden Histories of 15 Extraordinary Same-Sex Couples by Roger Stripematter. This book I have not stopped thinking about since I read it. Essentially, like bits of it just keep popping up in my brain at random times. So it's one of those um, survey books. So, you know, each chapter highlights a different LGBTQ couple. And there are a lot of people who you've probably heard of. And then a lot of people that I was like, oh, oh, like, you know, like you kind of Mm -hmm. know something about them, but you didn't know their name or like, I don't know. I thought it was really informative and um, I really, really value being culturally literate. That's a huge thing to me. And so I felt like this really helped in certain cases. I was like, oh, that person's connected to this, which is this. Great. So these are people, um, he profiles people like uh, Jane Addams and Mary Rose Smith. Jane Addams is the Chicago social reformer of the turn of the century. Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas, who might be some of the most famous people that he portrays uh, or talks about, James Baldwin and uh, Lucien Happersberger, and uh, artists Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg, which I did not know they were involved. So that was fascinating. Mm -hmm. And then I don't know a lot about art history. Also, Francis Clayton and Audre Lorde, which also just because they also give you like some of their biographies. So it's you're also in in addition to learning about this relationship, learning about the careers of the people who um he's talking about. And then Bessie Marbury and Elsie DeWolf, which like Elsie DeWolf created the field of interior design basically, which I did not know. So I reference her probably more than I should in life <laughs> just cuz I'm proud that I know anything about this. Um <laughs> And then Walt Whitman and Peter Doyle. Like, there's a lot that is covered. And I, I appreciate that he – I a lot of sort of LGBTQ history is written by men tend to mainly focus on male relationships. So I really appreciated that he made this effort to also include um, women's relationships in this. So, again, that is Outlaw Marriages, The Hidden Histories of 15 Extraordinary Same-Sex Couples by Roger Strikematter. That sounds so great. What an awesome and interesting pick. Because, yeah, I love the way that, like, we're getting to learn more about people who historically, like, they couldn't admit that they were couples or, you know, they kept it a secret or it wasn't really a secret, but nobody talked about it. And that we're finally getting to hear those stories and getting to, like, understand that, you know, like, these two women lived together for 50 years. They weren't just roommates, though. Like, (laughs) you know, I think that's, I don't know, it's, it's sad that, like, we have to uncover all of that, but I... I think this sounds fascinating. Uh, It's a great pick. Great pick. 
My next pick is a book that I love that is not explicitly about a love story. So I picked up a, a companion book that is explicitly about the love story in it. Uh, so the, the book I read is Victoria the Queen by Julia Baird, which is a really epic biography of one of the longest serving monarchs in uh, in England, uh, Queen Victoria. She uh, ascended to the throne when she was 18 after spending her childhood manipulated and sheltered by her mother and an aide. When she was crowned, it was basically the first time she ever was able to make decisions for herself, and she grew up to adulthood in the public spotlight. Um, she is probably best known for her very her short, relatively short marriage to her husband Albert, and then her very long public mourning period after he passed away. But this biography really like expands out from there. It shows her as a person, as a ruler, as a wife, as a mother, um, as someone who is passionate, smart, stubborn, and also really engaged with her kingdom, despite the kind of story we think about her as kind of disengaging after Albert dies. I think that just, I really love that biography. It's really, it's one of the few very large biographies I've ever read all the way through. Because um, I just, I thought it was fascinating and really well done. And I also love Victoria and Albert. Like, as a couple, I think they're really kind of fascinating. Um, so a book that I found that I have not read yet, but that sounds really great, that's about them specifically and so fits better, I think, into our epic love stories topic is uh, We Two, Victoria and Albert, Rulers, Partners, Rivals by Jillian Gill. Uh, and so this is a biography about their marriage in particular and how complicated it was for them. They initially, when they first met and were expected to, like, marry, like, didn't particularly like each other very much. And then Albert comes back later, and she is, like, suddenly very smitten with him because he's very handsome, and they get married. And then their marriage is really full of a lot of tension because she is the queen, and she is strong and passionate and engaged. But her husband also wants to be <laughs> a ruler and have his own kind of space. And so uh, the book is about kind of how they're different ambitions and passions butted heads and how they kind of competed with each other a little bit as they were building their relationship and also ruling the kingdom kind of together. And so I, I think that sounds really interesting because I, I don't know that a lot of the stories about Victoria and Albert really get into some of that. Like they sort of position her as the doting wife and him as the husband. And I think their marriage was more more complicated than that. And so I'm, I'm interested in learning more about it because I think they're kind of a fascinating pair. So Victoria the Queen by Julia Baird and We Too, Victoria and Albert, Rulers, Partners, Rivals by Jillian Gill. I think the um, miniseries about Victoria, mm. well, not miniseries, just the TV show, yeah. um, gets into Albert's ambition and their um, occasionally tempestuous nature of their relationship. Yeah, we watched the um, the first season of that, uh, my sister and I. And I, yeah, I did really like that part of it where they were trying to kind of understand them a little bit better and and show that they were, Albert had ambitions that he had to tamp down on isn't quite the right word, but like he was ambitious and she also was and they, it was complicated for them to be together in that way. So yeah, totally agree. And so with that, we will uh, close with our normal segment, which is what we are reading right now at this very moment. So uh, the book I'm reading right now, aside from all these nonfiction picks, is, uh, is a mystery. Uh, it's called Marion Lane and the Midnight Murder, a novel by T.A. Wilberg. And this is a, um, a mystery kind of about a secret uh, detective agency operating in London in 1958. Um, people, they kind of live underground or they they operate underground and people drop off notes to try and have these investigations happen by 
this group, Miss Brickett's Investigations and Inquiries. And so the book opens, there is a murder at Miss Brickett's, which is very shocking because nobody knows where they are except for people who are part of Miss Brickett's. So it's clearly an inside job. And so there's a young uh, woman, Marion Lane, who is a first year trainee at Miss Brickett's and she is finding herself pulled into trying to solve this mystery. Um, I'm going to kind of slowly reading through this one because I keep getting distracted but I love like weird genre e-mysteries and I love lady detectives and all of that so it's it's fun so far I'm hoping I can finish it this weekend did you read the girl waits with a gun series I read uh the first one yeah so you weren't that into it uh no I was I just I don't know I just kept not I, I think I read the first one when it first came out and I just haven't picked them up as they've come out after that but I did think those were fun that makes sense. Uh, I have not read it yet, but <laughs> it's been sitting on my shelf for some time. Um, I am currently reading The Lion in the Living Room, How House Cats Tamed Us and Took Over the World by Abigail Tucker. <laughs> this is because I am obsessed with my cats, and it's all very new for me. I mean, uh, my wife's cat who passed away recently, I loved very much, but um, it was not my cat. And then we um, jointly adopted these sisters uh, and they are so cute and they're all that I post about on Instagram now. It's true. They're so pretty though. They're so, so pretty. pretty. Oh my God. I just love them so much. So I was like, what has happened to my brain? I used to only care about dogs. <laughs> How has this thing happened with these cats? And so I got this book um, from the library, The Lion in the Living Room, and it's talking about basically humans' history with cats, why we developed this weird relationship with them, which with dogs, it makes more sense. And with cats, it it doesn't really <laughs> So, um, and you also get facts about cats living in the wild. And there's just a lot of good info in there that I have been sharing with people near me, whether or not they want to hear it. (laughs) So that is The Lion in the Living Room by Abigail Tucker. And with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. Uh, Thank you, Jen. And if you feel so inclined, we would love it if you would take a minute to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Doing that helps people find us more easily. And then while you're there, you can subscribe so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. Uh, So with that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the 4 Real Podcast. 